wouldn't mind turning with me to the book of 2 Corinthians this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we will begin reading with the first verse. And we'll read down to verse 10. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. God will bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank thee for the open word of God before us that thou hast promised is the means by which you wash your people in the water of the word. And so we pray that in this word you would wash us, you would meet the needs of every heart, that you would impress upon the minds of of thy people, the important truths found in this passage, that we would leave here more hungry for thee, with hearts different than we came. For the sake of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, tonight we are going to start a series on the attributes of God, Lord willing. Uh, is what the Lord has laid on my heart, on the attributes of God. I'm not sure how long that will take. I cannot be exhaustive. In fact, no one can be exhaustive. I can't be compre- fully comprehensive because if we could comprehend all that God is, we would be God. But we will seek to talk about the important aspects of God's character, his attributes, those things which are extremely necessary to know. And someone might ask, why is that important? Why do we need to know about the character of our God? Wouldn't it be more necessary to spend 
a couple of Sundays, a couple of weeks studying how-tos. I mean, how to have a good marriage or how to read your Bible. That's not bad. Those aren't both bad. But why wouldn't you spend more time on how-tos? Why would we start with the attributes of God? Is it really important for the Christian to know his or her God? A famous Dutch theologian of the 17th and early 18th centuries named Wilhelmus Abrakel wrote this, The foundation of religion is the character of God. The foundation of religion is the character of God. In other words, the foundation of true religion, of Christianity, is a true biblical vision of God. The knowledge of God His attributes, His person. It's not merely important to Christianity. It's not only necessary to Christianity, but it is Christianity. To know God is to be a Christian. And everything in the Christian life flows from our knowledge of God. When I use the word knowledge of God or know God, I don't mean an intellectual apprehension of God. Certainly, truth always enters through the avenue of the mind. But I am talking about an experiential knowledge. That knowledge which is the knowledge which can be spoken of somebody knowing someone in the sense that they have met them and experienced them. Perhaps they've They've spent time with them and they, they know them more than just at arm's length. It would be the difference between somebody looking at a massive buffet of food and saying, I know every item there. Being able to describe, if you're at a Chinese buffet, describe the General Tso's chicken and the noodles and the rice. But it's totally different to take a bite of that. And that's the kind of knowledge that I'm speaking of, the knowledge of God. The Christian is born in the knowledge of God, which we'll see in our passage this evening. We become Christians when we see God for who he is. This is Paul's position here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 6, Paul says that what changed him was that the gospel light was shined unto him and he saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He was born in the knowledge of God. But the Apostle Paul was not only born as a Christian in the knowledge of God, but the middle and the end of his life or of his existence was also consumed with the knowledge of God. The great thrust of his life was the pursuit of the knowledge of God. Philippians 3 and verse 10. He says, all these things that I may know him. The great pursuit of his life. But then for Paul also, the culmination of his Christian life was a joyful end and a full enjoyment of the knowledge of the unveiled God in eternity. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12 when the Apostle Paul says, I will see one day, not as in a glass darkly, but with open face, I will behold God and I will see Him fully and I will know Him. Psalm 16, the last verse, talks about how in the presence of God there is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this was Paul's great hope and what he was looking towards. The knowledge of God, to know God, is 
the Christian life. And therefore, wrong views of God dramatically affect the Christian life. Dramatically. And you may think, well, I am in a Reformed church. I hear Bible preaching. I must have right views of God. But you would be surprised that number one, many of those right views of God are not truly believed. And so they do not affect our lives. And number two, because of experiences or difficulties or trials in our own sinful nature, we, by nature, distort God. And we need to be reminded again and again, who is our God? The knowledge of God, is it important? It's vital. Absolutely important. And so this evening, I want us to consider from this passage the importance of the knowledge of God. And in the first place, consider this. The knowledge of God is the determining factor between the Christian and the non-Christian. The knowledge of God is the determining factor between the Christian and the non-Christian. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul begins this passage with a list of what makes a sincere gospel preacher. And he says this, in order to vindicate his ministry against people that were saying he was not a true apostle, in order to force their errors and to give their errors some kind of weight with the people of God. And so Paul is saying, listen, I am not a fake, I am not a charlatan, and neither are the other apostles. And he begins by saying, because I have received mercy, we have received mercy, we faint not. But we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. We don't live a life of skeletons in the closet. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. We do not walk in craftiness. We do not handle the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In a word, what he is saying is, is this. We have lived in such a way before you that we have manifested the truth of what we preach and that that truth is a reality to us. Because of our sincerity before you, your conscience bears witness that we are what we say we are. And then an objection is raised. Well, at least Paul perceives that it would be raised. And the objection would be this. Well, Paul... If your gospel, if your gospel is vindicated by the way that you live, then why don't more people believe? If, if, if the way you live commends to every man's conscience that you are what you say you are, then why don't more people believe this gospel? And Paul simply says this, people are blind. People are blind. Verse 3, if our gospel be hid, the gospel is hidden. Note that. Note that. It's not that the gospel is seen and people reject it. It's that it is hidden. You might present the gospel to someone, but there is something hidden 
but they don't see. In verse 4, Paul says, In whom the God of this world, the God of this world, that's Satan. John chapter 12, verse 31, the Lord Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. The God of this world, small g, has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Satan has blinded their minds. And that's an amazing statement. What Satan is out to do in this world is to blind the minds of human beings to the true reality and the true glory that the gospel is. This spiritual blindness is spoken of by Paul and other passages in the New Testament as well. Ephesians 4.18 says, Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, speaking of the heathen that do not know God, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, there's something very interesting here. Paul speaks about the darkening of the heart. But then here in 2 Corinthians 4, he speaks about the darkening or the blinding of the mind. So is the mind blinded or the heart blinded? Both are blind. Now, is the heart, the word, Greek word used to translate heart here, can speak of the intellect as well. So does heart here mean the seat of the will? And the mind mean the intellect alone? Or are they just two different words being used to communicate the intellect? Well, no matter how you slice it, we can find throughout the New Testament that the will of man is dark. The will of man is in bondage to sin. His whole person has been affected by sin. And this darkness came about in the garden. Man was plunged into darkness when he sinned against God and he was alienated from God and literally the life of God, the spirit of God that lived within man removed itself from man. And there is nothing good in man in and of himself. So when he lost communion with God, he became dark and there is no light in him. He's totally dark. He no longer in the garden after the sin of Adam, he no longer had affection for God. The greatest loss of the garden was a lack of communion with God. And the second greatest loss was a heart that no longer saw any attractiveness in God. And Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 4 that the minds of the lost are blind. And in verse 6 he says that God must shine in our hearts meaning that Paul's agreeing with the rest of that which he has written. The heart and mind of mankind is blind. Something that seems to help to explain this is, like, for example, my daughter Lydia is blind, but her eyes work perfectly. Her brain cannot comprehend what she's perceiving. And I think in a sense, there is in a sense a truth in the fact that man can see the facts of the gospel but he does not have the capacity 
to filter that into his spiritual into his spiritual understanding to see the glory that is there. He can't see it because his heart and his mind are blind. But what are they blind to particularly? Are they blind morally? They're not blind morally. This is not a blindness of morality. There are many people who don't know God, who are not Christians, and they're not blind morally. They're moral persons. There are people who are very, very, very moral. They, they will fly halfway across the world to bring water to people that don't have safe water to drink. There are people that will bend over backwards to give you money when you need it or clothing when you need it. People that join up with things like the Red Cross or things like that to give their lives for others. And yet they don't know God. They're not morally blind. Some people know the difference morally. Some of their consciences are seared, but many people are not blind morally. This is not a religious blindness. There are many religious people. There are the very religious Muslims who travel on the Hajj to Mecca to go through that religious experience where they, they spend all this time in the Hajj and they put them, dress themselves in white and they pray and weep over their sins at the top of a mountain and they go through this whole ritual. They don't know God. There are Buddhists who are extremely religious. Hindus who are extremely religious. There are so-called professing Christians who are extremely religious who know how to sing and know how to come to church and know how to read the Bible and know how to pray and they're very religious but they don't know God. This is not a factual blindness. There are many people that are very aware of the facts of the gospel, the facts of scripture, the facts of the attributes of God. They might be able to spout the answer of the catechism we talked about this, this morning. They can say God is all of these things. They can tell you Jesus, he died for sinners. He gave himself to save sinners. And they can tell you all about the facts of the gospel. But this blindness described by Paul is not a factual blindness. These people knew the facts. They knew the gospel. They preached it and they heard it. They understood it. And yet there was something lacking. What were they blind to? They were blind to the knowledge of the glory of God. That's what they are blind to. And that's what Paul says in verse 4. That blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest what? The light of the glorious gospel. That's the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And verse 6, he reiterates this. When he was saved, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God was seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The idea here is that the gospel sets forth Christ in his person and in his work. And Christ is the image of God. And so in the gospel, we see the glory of God displayed. And that is what people are blind to. What is the glory of God? You can define the glory of God as the outshining of all of his perfections. If you could sum up all that he is, his goodness, his grace, his love, his mercy, his holiness, his joy, his blessedness, his limitless power, his limitless knowledge, his infinite nature, his eternal nature, his self-sufficiency, his all-sufficiency, what emanates from a full sight of all that he is, is glory. The shining 
of his perfections. It's more of a word like beauty than it is like a thing. I could describe a thing. I could say my Bible, my Bible is, is a black cover and has pages. And I could try to describe it for you because you have some point of reference to what I'm describing. But to say that God is glorious, how do I describe that to you? It's like saying that is beautiful. How do I describe what is beautiful? It's a perceived attribute. And people are absolutely blind. There is no glory in God. There's nothing in God that's attractive. And that is what makes the fundamental difference. As we just sang in the hymn this evening, McShane said, I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ in the tree, what Jehovah said Canu was nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept and the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah said Canu was nothing to me. There's nothing. This tells us that the logic of the gospel is not the issue. Do you understand that you're a sinner? Do you understand that? What's the fundamental difference between the Christian and the non-Christian? It is what he perceives in God. But then second, we see from this passage that the knowledge of God is important because it is the aim of gospel preaching. The knowledge of God is the aim of gospel preaching. After Paul describes the condition of the lost in verses 3 and 4, he then turns to explain that they, the apostles, preach Christ. In verse 5, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus. <laughs> Paul's not interested in preaching himself. He preaches Christ Jesus, the Lord. And then in verse 6, he says, For God, meaning this is why I preach Christ. This is why I am who I am. And he explains that, as we have spoken of, he had a revelation of the knowledge of the glory of God and the gospel, which, which manifests the face of Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing is, is that it came about by it, the sovereign and gracious self-revelation of God in the gospel. That is how Paul saw God through a sovereign and gracious self-revelation of God in the gospel. It was sovereign. He says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. And that draws our minds back to think about Genesis chapter 1. When we have the abject darkness of the pre-human earth, and there there is absolute complete total darkness there is not a movement of light in any corner of the universe there is no light at all and then God spoke and he said let there be light and immediately there was light there was no capacity in the earth to bring light and there is obviously no capacity in man to create light God had to speak into the darkness and create out of nothing the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the soul of man. And God spake and he created an appetite for God in man. He created man as a new creature in Christ Jesus. He shone in our hearts and all of a sudden we saw God to be glorious. Where once he was nothing. This was a gracious act of God. Paul says, He commanded the light to shine out of darkness. He shined in my heart. But what does the Bible say about man's heart? The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things who can know it. There is nothing good in man. Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. If you look at Acts chapter 9, when the apostle Paul was on the Damascus road and he's breathing out threatenings and slaughter. I mean, his... His, his, his body was shaking, no doubt, with, with the exhilarating thrill of what it would be like to put the Christians in prison and to cause them to blaspheme. And all of a sudden, light shined out of heaven. And Paul was saying, Lord, what will thou have me to do? It was grace, all undeserved grace. Hallelujah for grace. That God has spoken in our hearts to show us the glory of God. And where did he show us this glory? Show Paul this glory? It was in the gospel. This is what the text says in verse 6. He has shined in our hearts. Interesting just to note that the shining in the hearts takes care of the blindness of the mind. It's just interesting to see that. He shined in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Back to verse 4, that's the glorious gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. God is revealed in the gospel. You see, the, pre the preeminent thing about the gospel, yes, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, is about man's reconciliation with God. It is to set Christ before people so that they might come to have their sins forgiven and the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. That they might be justified. That they might be born again. That they might be sanctified. That one day they might be glorified. Yes, that is the point of the gospel. But the preeminent thing about the gospel is that the gospel reveals and manifests the glory of God. It shows His holiness in demanding the blood of the Son for the sins of His people. It shows His un, undivided love, unrelenting love in sending His Son to die for His people. It shows His omnipotence, His power as He upheld the Son in His sufferings. It shows His wisdom and that He orchestrated redemption by the work of the Son and the Father and the Spirit together worked to bring man to know God, to be reconciled with God. And there's a thousand more attributes of God that are shining in the gospel. What is the aim of the gospel? What is the aim of conversion? It's not just that man might be forgiven of his sins. It's not just that man might be justified. It's that man might know God. It's that man might commune with God. Think for a moment about the mercy seat. In the tabernacle. God said that on the mercy seat I will what? Commune with thee. So what was the result? What was the end? What was the aim of the bloodshed? Of the work of the priest? Sprinkling the blood 
all over the veil, sprinkling the blood on the ground, pouring the blood on the mercy seat. What was the work of the priest and the sacrifices? And it was communion with God. And you and I have been made for God. We've been made to know Him. Not just to be forgiven, but to know Him. The knowledge of God is the great aim of the gospel and even conversion. As I said, that the greatest loss in the garden was lack of communion, and secondly, a lack of a loss of a heart that found any attractiveness in God. The greatest gift God ever gave you and me was Himself. And the second greatest was a heart to know and enjoy Him. Being born again it wasn't just about being saved from hell. God gave you the capacity to have your absolute satisfaction fulfilled in God. He gave you a love for Him. That's the great gift. And then finally we see in this passage that the knowledge of God is important because the knowledge of God has life-transforming power. It has life-transforming power. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, the conversion of the Thessalonians is described in this way, which bears on our text. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. If you can notice the language here. You turned to God. Note that not morality, not righteousness, to God. From idols, with the end of serving God. So for, for some reason, they saw something in God that caused them to forsake their idols and turn to God and endeavor to serve the living and true God. So conversion here is described as a turning to God from idols with the aim of no longer serving those idols, but living to God. So we see again, the fundamental issue is God. A battle between God and idols. God is center in this description of conversion. But why would the Thessalonians turn from their idols to serve God? This is exactly what we've been talking about this evening. It's because they saw something in God. Again, in verse 6, we have Paul's description of the conversion of himself and all the apostles. But wait a second. We remember, as we said earlier, Saul was his name. He was a blasphemous, murderous, narrow-minded, bigoted, hate-filled, religious Pharisee that hunted down believers. And now he's a Christ-consumed proclaimer of the glory of God. And now he says in verse 5, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. He says in verse 8, listen, we are troubled on every side for the preaching of the gospel. We are perplexed for the preaching of the gospel. We're persecuted for the preaching of the gospel. We're cast down for the preaching of the gospel. We're always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. But I joyfully go on. What has happened to the Apostle Paul? What caused him to say what he did in Philippians chapter 3? He says, listen, I was circumcised the eighth day. 
of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss. For what? To be saved from hell? No. For Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge, the knowledge of Christ Jesus. I count them but dung, but excrement, that I may win Christ. And that's when he says in verse 10, that I may know Him. He says, he is saying, listen, I have seen something in the gospel, in God. I've seen something far more glorious, far more wonderful than all that I had before. Thomas Chalmers, who was a 19th century Scottish, Scottish minister, wrote a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in it he said this, the only, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is the expulsive power of a new one. God is the new one. And that's what caused Paul to, to throw away his sin, to cast it away, to count all of it, fame, pleasure, lust, entertainment, all the glory of this world, all the glitter of this world, to be dung. It was only dung when it was compared to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Then it was dung. Dung to Paul. But this truth is not only something that is true in conversion, but in Christianity at large, in the Christian life. We must focus more on adoring and worshiping and knowing God than we do on the imperatives of how we ought to live. Note the difference, please. The imperatives must be mentioned. We must live a certain way. It's a matter of how to get there. The more and more we become worshipers of God, the more and more we will be transformed into His image. The more time we spend with Him, meditating in Him, seeing Him, adoring Him, that expulsive power of a new affection will overwhelm the old affections. We would, we would say with the hymn writer, I'd rather have Jesus. And that's what we ought to do. God needs to become our, if I can use this word in the right way, obsession. He needs to be the controller of everything about our life. And we need to spend much focus and time and energy in knowing who He is. And we see Him in this book. This book is the self-revelation of God. It shows us who He is. And the psalmist said in Psalm 43, God, my exceeding joy. God is my and your joy. And that is why it is a joy to come to the Word and to see God in the Word. The knowledge of God is important. 
because it has life transforming power. How much do you think about God? The psalmist says that his thoughts toward us are without number. Are our thoughts toward him without number? How much do we meditate on him? Is he the pulse beat of our life? Are we worshipers of God? And may I just end with this as well. You cannot be a worshiper of God until you are an admirer of God. Worship is not something you can just simply make happen. Worship is not coming and singing and praying. Worship is the response of admiration. And the only way to admire Him is to know Him. A.W. Tozer was right when he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's my prayer that in these studies we will see God and will give us a hunger to know Him more and transform us into His image more and more. The Lord bless us to our hearts this evening. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee and bless Thee for who Thou art. Lord, we thank Thee that the psalmist was right when he said, Whom have I in heaven but Thee, and upon earth there is none that I desire beside Thee. My heart and my flesh faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord, open our eyes to see Thy glory. Thank You for giving us hearts to love Thee. Oh, how we long to love Thee more. Lord, it is our chief complaint that our love is weak and faint. Lord, bless each and every one. And may they go in the fullness of the blessings of the gospel. For Jesus' sake, amen.